Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about what's going on at the Vatican. This week, we cover what all came out in the final document from the Synod on Young People, and then we look at Pope Francis's comments on accusations against the Church being a form of persecution. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Our first story today, and what we'll spend most of the show on, is the final document that came out of the bishops meeting with and about young adults. That month-long meeting wrapped up last week at the Vatican, and now it's expected that Pope Francis will use that document that was released on Saturday night to write an official document called an apostolic exhortation, basically making what comes out of the synod into official church teaching. Jerry wrote a thorough explainer of this document that you can read at americamagazine.org. So let's get right into our conversation. The main point of the document, according to your report, was basically what we've been hearing since the Synod was announced, which is that young people want the church to listen to them. And that young people especially want the church to listen to young people who are on the margins, who are poor, who are migrants. It says that migration issues, you know, disproportionately affect young people. I was wondering what your first general impression of of this document was. Well, it's a wide-ranging document because you can find most things in it. War, violence, migration. You can find people on another part of the planet worried over the climate change. You can find also people within the church saying, you know, we want more space. We want to be listened to. We want women to have more role in the church, also in decision-making. We want gays to be welcomed, not to be excluded. We want nobody excluded. One of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about was one of the things that you mentioned, which was this call for women's leadership, especially in church structures. So like you said, this document calls for women to be in decision-making positions at all levels of the church. I was wondering if you had any idea how this might get sort of codified or what specifics for implementing this that Francis might offer in his document that he'll write after this? Yes, we don't, we're not certain yet that he will write a follow-up document. What is very clear, and Pope Francis made it clear on the Sunday when he spoke at the Angelus, he says the first fruit of this synod is the method, the synodal method where people come together, bishops, priests, uh, lay people, young people, old people, they come together, they listen to each other with respect, not come in with an agenda which is already prefixed. I want to get this idea into the document. He says, no, no, you, you come to listen with respect and perhaps even to change your mind about questions, come with an open heart and open mind. Then you discern, you try to work out what you've heard, what is the Spirit of God saying to the church at this moment, and then you reach your conclusions. So in answer to your question, what will it mean for women? A lot will depend on how the local church picks up this document. It will mean that, say, in a local diocese, the bishop with the priests, with the laity, with the young people, some of the elders, will come together and they will discuss how can this become a reality in our church? How can we 
enable women to have a fuller role also in the decision making so much will happen in the dis- in the local level i've heard many bishops saying you know in our diocese we do this already but many the majority are not doing it and that can take a range of forms right it can look like you know maybe a woman running the diocesan school system or it can look like maybe a, a role that usually would belong to a priest in in the diocesan leadership going to a woman. So yeah, this will this will take different forms based on the diocese. It can. The document makes clear that any role that doesn't require ordained ministry can be done. This gives a lot of leeway for for the encouragement for leeway because it's it's not a legislative document, but what it is is a guidance document. So it's it's a kind of a an unfinished product. It becomes finished when the local church takes it up, follows the method, and then sees how they can where it can open up possibilities for women that haven't been done before. And also it's going to free the the priest. Yeah, there's a shortage. There's a shortage and even at this synod bishops were saying that people are lamenting that they have too many administrative jobs to do. Why don't you open up these to women, to lay people? This document is encouraging that. Open it up to young people, the whole digital world. And that would then put those people in a position to to make important decisions, which is what people are asking for. Yes, and this will be a bottoms-up result. Instead of uh, many people I've heard saying, you know, why doesn't the Pope put more people in decision-making offices in, in, in the Vatican? He's put some, but his message is another. He's saying the the change has to take place at the local church level. Why can't it be both? Right, that's that's my reaction when I hear that. Is is we've asked for people to be in leadership positions at at all levels of the church. Yes. So why not grassroots and also high levels of the Vatican? He, he is saying that, and he's already put in some women, but. It's essential that it takes root at the local level. Mm-hmm. I guess it does seem that if if the change were to start on a local level like that, maybe it then would change the mentality, you know, going up the ranks, right? Maybe it would get the bishops thinking differently and the everyone else thinking differently. Uh, absolutely, because then you come to the synods with a different input from the bishops. All this conversation about women's leadership that came out of the Synod got me wondering if we could expect a real change in the status of women not being able to vote at the next Synod. We don't have time to get into that on this episode, but you can check out my explainer article, Why Can't Women Vote in the Synod on Young People, at americamagazine.org. Another issue that received a lot of attention, especially in the American media, was the question of LGBT issues and how they would be addressed at the Synod. The Synod's preparatory document was the first Vatican document ever to use the term LGBT, but that early document is seen as less official than this final document that Jerry and I are discussing. So the question was whether the final document would also include the term LGBT, and it didn't. Jerry and I will get into that, but first I wanted to take a second with Jerry to appreciate that this discussion was brought up at all. And I wanted to ask you for some perspective here because you've been covering the Vatican for more than 30 years. Could you imagine? back in like the 80s even, that something like this would be discussed so openly at, at a synod? Not in this way. If the issues were discussed, it was to reaffirm a moral position already clarified. Here, Francis made very clear from the beginning, he wanted people to speak from the heart. He wanted them to say what they really think. 
even if they disagreed with the church. Even if they disagree with each other. And he he was insistent. He was in the synods on the family, and even more so in this one, insisting, you must say what you think. Don't uh, look for somebody to raise a red flag and say, no, that's not allowed. And I think this has happened. And it's very significant that the final document, it shows a certain openness to re-looking at many issues. One of those issues was sort of the question of gender identity or transgender people, right? They, they had this quote, it says, there are questions related to the body, affectivity, and sexuality, which require a deeper anthropological, theological, and pastoral elaboration, which should be carried out in the most convenient ways at the local and universal levels of the church. Like they're willing to examine this question that I think a lot of people considered a closed book. This is big, because this is an opening which uh, would not have been given space 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I, I, I could not have imagined this happening on the previous pontificates. Wow. Everybody knows that, for example, in questions like uh, family planning, all this, that people are not following the church's teaching by and large. Small numbers are, but by and large people aren't. But it's kind of, nobody wants to talk about it. And here in terms of the gender identity, uh, it's an admission. You know, the, we haven't the answers. Uh, there are lots of things that we need to understand better. Right. So looking for this broader kind of reflection at theological, anthropological, other levels is opening a door. And I think uh, that this is very important because Francis believes in taking a look from a different angle at a question. And he, he also believes that we have built, church has built a kind of a moral teaching which can collapse like a pack of cards if, if it's not properly understood. And so it's very important to reflect on these questions in a new way where taking advantage of all the research and studies, also at the theological level. And I, I think this particular quote that you gave is very significant in my view. Jerry, do you think that the bishops seem to be comfortable with this sort of re-examination of these issues and the frankness with which they're being asked to approach the issue? I think many bishops, you know, bishops have been priests before. Most of them have worked in parishes. They hear confessions. They will have talked to people. They will know the difficulties. And the the document makes clear, you know, that church is having a real difficulty presenting its moral teaching on these issues. The document is very explicit about this. There is a willingness to, I think what Francis is doing and what he's done, especially, I think it would be correct to say that we take the three synods that he has held so far, the two on the family and these young people, as part of a whole. We shouldn't separate them as there's a family and now there's the young people and tomorrow there's something else. No, these are all part of a whole. Right, because young people are in families and young parents face this like a intersection of these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the method for approaching it, this listening, discerning, and then reaching conclusions, uh, and then respect for conscience. It does seem like, especially with the sort of transgender issue, that, that Francis has kind of, he seems to have made up his mind already, right? He's he's denounced, you know, different different forms of gender theory and such pretty pretty harshly. So 
I wonder how does that work together with with this approach then? Well, there are different questions coming up. And let me say, you asked earlier about, you know, are the bishops with him? In the Synod of Bishops on the family, at the end, he got two-thirds majority on every question. So that's that process where they vote on every paragraph of the final document? Every paragraph, every issue, yes. And in this same question, he got two-thirds majority. The biggest negative vote, but to, to have a, vote, uh, a paragraph or an issue be approved, you need two-thirds of the vote. Right. You're, you're referring to how the section on homosexuality in this, this one got the highest no vote? It got the highest no vote, but it was still 12 votes above the necessary two-thirds. Got it. So it passed. Yes. But the question was that for many people, there was the question of the language, LGBT, do you use it or not? Uh, I remember listening to a bishop from the Cameroon and said, I don't understand this, and much less my people. He said, I I won't vote, and many of us in Africa won't vote for a document that carries that. Right. Some people were complaining that they didn't understand what this this word meant, this uh, LGBT term, and others were saying that it just would create a lot of confusion or even scandal in countries like in Africa where where the gender roles in society and gender identity are, are very a, a fundamental part of society. Yes, I, I think you've got to understand. You had at this synod bishops and young people and auditors from more than 130 countries, all continents, very different experiences. In some areas, this is not an issue at all, at least not today. Maybe tomorrow, as some bishops said, but today it's not an issue in my thing. Other issues are very big. Uh, Migration for many, many was a a very big one. I, I think the question of the homosexuality is I, I think when you look at what's in there, it may not satisfy everybody, but it doesn't use, for example, expressions like intrinsically disordered. Intrinsically disordered is the phrase that the Catechism of the Catholic Church, so basically the, the book of what Catholics believe, uses to describe what it calls homosexual acts. It's a phrase that people who advocate for more pastoral care for gay and lesbian people say is really hurtful. But this document avoids using that language. I think you've got to look at these documents saying what is in and what has been left out. And I think there's a certain openness to the question, but a recognition that the issue is more more of concern to some countries than others. And there has to be this respect that, you know, people are traveling at different speeds on different questions. Right. It's it's a universal document, and it's not a document that's made for North America or made for Africa. It's a document that's trying to bring together the different issues, the different concerns, the different possible solutions that are being proposed. Yeah. So what ultimately happened with that section was that the term LGBT didn't make it into the final document, um, but the Senate did end up in that in that paragraph that passed by a somewhat relatively close margin. Uh, they ended up denouncing violence based on sex or sexual orientation, and they acknowledged the efforts that a lot of dioceses and parishes are making to accompany or take care of the spiritual needs of LGBT people. 
that last part you say about you know there are some parishes, some communities, etc., were working to welcome to integrate. This is very important because I I know of places in Western Europe where this was denounced. Uh, people felt this was wrong. People felt priests shouldn't be doing this. Uh, but here there's encouragement for, for it. So uh, as I said, you've got people are moving at different uh, speeds. Right. And it seems like even openness to discussing this question is a really big step. Um, I wanted to ask you one last thing before we move on to our next story. I was seeing on Twitter a lot of videos of these this sort of celebratory atmosphere, um, a bunch of videos of bishops dancing and, and young people and bishops singing together in what looked like a bar in, in Rome. I was wondering if you witnessed any of any of this, if there were any memorable moments like that for you. Well, I, I was struck with, in the briefings how the young people who came were so articulate and uninhibited and spoke very perceptively about the issues. I, I think it was an eye-opener for the bishops. Some of them have good relations, but I don't think they had quite, in many places, seen the potential that is there among the young people for being part of the church, but helping the church to move forward and to preach the gospel. I think many bishops went away with deep conviction of this. And in the voting, in the synod, in, and in the speeches, they would holler and they would... The, the young people would? Yes, yes. Then they had a little concert near the end and the Pope said, he spoke about it, he said, your enthusiasm, your noise, <laughs> your noise. Uh, but this was appreciated. And uh, in an article I wrote, uh, an interview I did for America, I, I quoted the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, Nichols, who said he's never been at a synod like this in, in before. He said it was even fun. And Cardinal Nichols is kind of a quiet guy, so it's funny to picture him in this in this environment. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, he comes from the land of the Beatles, from the Liverpool, <laughs> but he it was uh, it was an interesting comment. And I've heard many of the synod fathers saying that. And the young people, they really enjoyed. They were surprised. Of course, all of them are Catholics, practicing Catholics, very linked to the church. And so they're a special type of young people in a way. But uh, they came from very different uh, work situations, study situations, very impressive in terms of how they were able to get their message across, both in the plenary sessions, in the working groups, but also at the coffee table. Yeah. Do you think that sort of a breakdown in kind of the formality of the Synod led to a better quality of dialogue? For sure. And to return to my starting point, the Pope said the first fruit of the Synod is the method. And this is part of the method. You get people together to listen, to discern, to propose, but to be together and to trust, build trust in each other and open your minds and hearts to each other, not come in with ideas that you want this to be approved. And if you don't, you go away with a sour face. And if this is taken down to the local level, you can think in the local churches in the diocese. How often does this kind of thing happen? Not much, but hopefully it happens more following the synod. 
Our second story today also comes from the end of the Synod, when Pope Francis was speaking off the cuff about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Then he pivoted to talking about what he called another kind of persecution, quote, the continuous accusations to smear the church. I think most people in the U.S. would read this comment to mean that Pope Francis is talking about people who bring legitimate accusations of sexual abuse against clergy. But Jerry said it wasn't about that at all. The, the Pope has made very clear on many occasions that he welcomes people who come out and denounce the abuse of children or of vulnerable people by clergy or the cover-up. He, he's made very clear that he welcomes this. What he doesn't accept is that this issue is used as a pretext to attack the church for other agendas. This is something that has come up in the Vigano story that we discussed last week, where you know the letter concerns a lot of sex abuse issues um, with the McCarrick case, but you know seems to be seems to be standing for another agenda. Yes, it, it, it's 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 one example of it, and you see who come out to support him. And you see which media support him are very are moved very quickly. Jerry's referring here to a couple of the media organizations associated with various Catholic groups that received early copies of the Vigano letters and published them first. We discussed this complicated history of these letters last week in episode one. Those organizations came out in support of Vigano and his call for the Pope to resign very quickly once they released the letters. Yeah, since I wrote the article, I've spoken to various people, and I think what I wrote is is very close to the understanding here. What the Pope was talking about, he has been now Pope for five years. He's seen a a growing uh, accusation, for example, of the churches when he speaks about the economy, the churches teaching there, being accused of being communist, being accused of something else with his his document on the the encyclical laudato si the one on the environment our keep protection of our common home there's a strong body of opinion who quite financially well healed who don't accept this and who are funding operations against it some of the things these interest groups disagree with pope francis on are his emphasis on poverty and against the arms trade and nuclear weapons when he touches the arms industry, he's touching big, big money, and that is not welcome. Right. And they also use media in different ways. And so if an issue like the sex abuse scandals come up, uh, they can throw forces behind this, not because of concern for the sex abuse scandal necessarily, but for another agenda. And the Pope is very conscious of this. I think uh, he's conscious of forces that are trying to divide the church. And it's this divisiveness that Pope Francis is denouncing with these comments. We've covered a lot in this episode, but as you know, there is even more Vatican news than what we can cover in this podcast. For full articles from Jerry, videos and podcasts, and sometimes articles from me, and reporting from our many colleagues, visit americamagazine.org. Inside the Vatican is produced by me, Colleen Dully, and edited by Oliver Lazarus. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineers this week were Eric Sundrup and Karen Freeman. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. 
You can follow Jerry on Twitter at Jerry O. Rome, and you can follow me at Colleen Dully. For America Media, I'm Colleen Dully with Gerard O'Connell. See you next week.